Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Insider, the jazz session spin-off series where I chat to industry experts about the nuts and bolts of the business. Today's guest is Gail Boyd, the president of Gail Boyd Artist Management and the entertainment law firm Gail W. Boyd PC. She was a founding partner in Boyd, Staten and Cave. Staten or Staten? Staten. Mm, And Cave, the first African-American female law firm in New York and has been involved in entertainment law since 1976. As a lawyer, she has represented jazz artists like Betty Carter, Tommy Flanagan, Kenny Barron, Gretchen Parlato, and Randy Weston. As a manager, she currently represents John Clayton, Lakeisha Benjamin, Scott Tixier, and Nduduzo Makatini, amongst others. Gail, welcome to The Insider. Hello, and thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and privilege. And firstly, I want to congratulate you on your 2021 Jazz Journalist Association Jazz Hero Award received for the impact that your alternative venues and jazz group has had on the New York, and I would say definitely beyond, jazz community. That recognition must have been so meaningful. It was. It's the first time I've been given an award for doing something that I love. So that felt really good. And because it was awarded to me during the pandemic, I haven't actually received the statue yet, but they have arranged to give it to me August 29th out here near my home, just before a big concert. So we will do it live. And I'm so excited about that. Can you say which concert it is or not yet? I can say it's a Brianna Thomas band and they're performing at Steel Stacks at Beth- in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is 20 minutes from my house. So that's why they decided to do it there because all I have to do is drive 20 minutes and before the concert, and it's my client too, and before the concert, they'll give me my award. So I'm happy about that. Oh, that's so, I'm so glad that you'll get to experience it in that way as well. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and it'll be a beautiful concert because Brianna Thomas oh. is... All of that. All of that. And a bag of chips. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm thrilled about that because I've been following that group on Facebook. It's still going for anyone who's interested. And um, the weekly lives that it hosts, or that I should say you host, are fascinating and wonderful and remind us that the jazz community is still going and they're still alive even after this really horrendous year plus. I do it daily. (gasps) It's not weekly, Monday through Friday at five o'clock Eastern, every day since April 18th of 2020. I've not missed a day. How has it changed your life or your outlook on the work that you do in jazz? I tell people that I still learn something every single day. And people have said to me, well, how do you curate it? And I don't. If people ask me for a 30 minute slot, they get it. They can be brand new jazz artists, they can be legends. And sometimes I'll go after some people and say, hey, are you interested? But essentially I'm not looking for a particular jazz person. The whole purpose of doing it was to keep the jazz community together during the pandemic. And when I first thought about it, I thought, let me just put it out here on alternative venues and see if anybody wants to come on and just tell me their story. How are they coping through the pandemic? So I put a little note on the Facebook page and said, anybody want to come on and just tell me how you're coping? And I thought I would do like one a month. And I got 50 responses the first time. So I thought if I do one a month, it'll take me four years. (laughs) And I hope we're not in the pandemic during that. So I thought, okay, I'll do it every day. And it's been going on like that. I'm already booked through August. I'm working on September and October now. And people really seem to enjoy it. So what I have learned is that everybody's story on how they got to jazz is really, really interesting. And it shapes 
not only what they play or whether they're in the industry, the kinds of work they do, it shapes them as people. And it, I find that there's this whole sense of community and, and longing and, and belonging and wanting to be part of something bigger than yourself that comes across whether you just started in the industry or whether you're a legend like today, I have Reggie Workman, who's an NEA jazz master. And I'm as excited to hear about him as I was somebody, you know, a couple of weeks ago who was just in school and about to graduate and doing jazz. So that's why I do it. I still get a lot out of it. So it's actually only a little selfish. I don't think it's selfish. And the Jazz Journalist Association doesn't think it's selfish either, which is why they gave you that award, because <laughs> it is so meaningful for other people. And I urge listeners uh, to go and find that group, Alternative Venues and Jazz, on Facebook. And you can and you can see all of um, the the offerings from people throughout the community. And as you say, I think the community is one of the things I love most about jazz. Being a musician or being a broadcaster, and it really does iterate that. So yes. thank you. So true. Thank your... you for being for coming on and listening. Oh, and if you goodness. if you join the page, you can go back and hear all of them. They're all still there. So. You know, and we'll continue to be there. Reggie Workman asked me the other day, well, what are you going to do with all this, like, at some point? And I, and I thought, I've never even thought about doing something with it. I mean, because to me, it's very current. It's just like, who will I have tomorrow? Who will I have the next day? And, and on and on like that. The second thing I wanted to say is that I had, I've known, I should mention, I've known you for what, nine-ish, eight-ish years probably by now. And we... Yes, I was trying to remember, but it's at least that. Yeah, I'm 10 years out of graduate school and I think that I probably met you about nine. Around yeah, there. around there. Yeah. And I had no idea about your law background. Really? And the scope of your work as an entertainment lawyer. I know it's completely astonishing because you must now think, did she think I was making ice cream on the side? Like... <laughs> Does she not know why I'm so fabulous at the work that I do? But I didn't. And and I also didn't know because it precedes your work as a manager. And I've yes. always thought of you as an artist manager. So in fact, to stumble upon this gem of information was wonderful. I oh, thought, oh, thank you. Yeah, so much more to ask you. Um, not that there wouldn't be plenty to discuss if you were purely an artist manager, I should say. I wanted to know if you could tell us about the transition from lawyering only to music or entertainment or jazz specific lawyering and then starting to manage jazz artists as well. Okay, if you've got time for this story, I will say that I wanted to be a lawyer since I was five years old. When I got to be about 13, I knew that I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. And part of the reason was because around that time, I remember that Johnny Mathis and there was someone else who, um, it was an article or probably it was on television or something, how they had been um, cheated out of some money. And I thought, who represents these people? Like, how, do you, how does that happen? Um, and so I knew at 13 that I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. So I did. I went on and, you know, finished high school, finished college, got into law school and took a couple of jobs doing other things. But it was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. Um, and so in 1983, I guess, um, two friends of mine, Laverne Cave and Betty Staten, we were all lawyers working for the city of New York. And we would walk from Brooklyn into Manhattan every day and we would complain about our jobs. And it never occurred to us that we were creating history. I mean, it occurred to us that we were three dissatisfied city attorneys. And one day we finally said, you know, we ought to just quit our jobs and start our own firm. And we all said, yeah, sure, okay. So we did. And then the ABA wrote to me, wrote to us and said, we think you might be the first African-American female law firm in New York. We wanna come out and interview you. And they did. 
and took pictures of us. And we ended up in the ABA journal, which was nice. But they wrote to us later on and said, we've actually done our research and we think you might be the first in the country. <laughs> so that was really nice. So I'm practicing law and I'm doing all kinds of law. I'm doing labor, I'm doing entertainment. I mean, not entertainment, labor, um, employment, things like that. But I'm still scratching and trying to, to get my way into entertainment law. And Betty Carter, um, you know, the story is, is kind of backwards now because I had actually met Betty Carter earlier. But she's the one who said to me, I was her lawyer doing just some little things, her will, things like that. And so one day I said to her as I did something else that was very minor. And I said to her, but this is fine. But I want to go off and do what you're doing. I want to go off with you on the road. I want to do, you know, other kinds of things. When you go on the on the road, I want to talk to you about how you're planning your next album, things like that. And she said, oh, Gail, that's management. That's not law. And it dawned on me and I thought, oh, I didn't have to go to law school to do what I really wanted to do. <laughs> So I never managed Betty Carter, but she is the one who set me on this path. And so I, I was practicing law and managing um, a couple of reggae artists, but jazz was always my thing from, from even being a teenager. And so at that point, while I'm practicing law, my husband says to me, you know, I took economics in college. And I can tell you that what doesn't make sense is that you're making your money practicing law and you're spending it all managing jazz artists. <laughs> he said, you need to pick. <laughs> like, what are you gonna do? And I said, well, I really wanna manage. And he said, well, then stop practicing law and just do your thing. I got you, I'll support you. And that's how I got started being pretty much a full-time manager. Now I do still have some legal clients, but 99% of my time is devoted to managing jazz artists. And so I found my bliss. Are your legal clients, do you represent them within entertainment specifically? Or Yes, yes, only entertainment. So right now I'm, I was Randy Weston's lawyer and now I'm executor of his estate. Um, I'm the lawyer for Dorothon Kirk and, and part of the Rossan Roland Kirk estate. Um, and I represent Henry Threadgill and a couple of his projects. So it's all entertainment based. I don't do anything outside of entertainment. So the two takeaways listeners from that are one, that Gail studied law and had graduate studies under the tutelage of Betty Carter. <laughs> and the other takeaway is that if anybody's having any issues clearing anything to do with Randy Weston's <laughs> repertoire, meet the ex co-executor of his will. Right. <laughs> Here, you know, because I feel like a lot of people when they want to cover works by an artist that is now just in a state and they're no longer with us, there's a lot of Googling, Who, who's the contact? Well, right. you can just hit me up for Gail's email address. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
I'm so glad I asked, Gil. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And what really stuck with me was that your background and knowledge of law and specifically entertainment law really must set you apart from other managers because you have that expertise and you can offer that insight for the artists that you're managing. Well, that's true in a way and in a way not, because if there are things that I think they need to to ask a lawyer about, I encourage them to have somebody else look at it because there's a potential conflict of interest. If If I were giving them legal advice about something that could benefit me as their manager, there would be a conflict. But most of the time it doesn't get that deep. And so I can say to them, you know, this is something you need to look at as a lawyer. I would say, this is how you do it. But if it ever got to be something that was very serious, I would say, get another lawyer and, and, and you ask them outside of me and then whatever they recommend. That has happened a couple of times, but most of the time it's not that serious. But every manager brings something to the table different. Um, Karen Kennedy, who, who we talked about earlier, was, you know, has counseling background and, and record company experience and having run a label. So when she's talking to her clients, then she's talking to them about things that I don't have any, any knowledge about, no expertise actually in that. So I find that, that you bring with you your all, whatever it is that you were doing before. Very true. But I do still think that even if it's on a superficial level or just a how would you navigate the scale, it's very useful to have somebody who can say, well, these are your rights. Yeah. You should know this. Be aware yeah. of that. And there are times, there are times when, um, especially with dealing with other people, if I'm not getting something that is owed to my clients as a manager, and sometimes I will just forget and send a letter with my legal stationery, like, oh, how did I do that? I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then you sometimes get a response. Sometimes that them to move a little faster. So just because this is audio only, when, when Gail said by accident, she did air quotes, inverted commas. <laughs> right. So for anybody out there who has a legal background, I she recommends it works in getting a response to something. <laughs> that yes. might have evaded you up until the point. Yes. Dale, when you're pursuing an artist that you'd really like to manage and represent and work with, what are the key aspects? And granted, I'm sure it changes from person to person, but in general, what are some of the key aspects of your pitch in convincing them that you're the best fit for them? I have only ever gone after somebody one time. And that was Andy Bay years ago. I went someplace and I heard him and I was completely floored. And I just went up to him and I said, what would it take for me to work with you? And he already had a manager and he put me together with that manager. And for a very short period of time, I co-managed Andy Bay with the manager that he already had. Um, but when people come to me, I have sort of a formula in my head about why I would want to work with this artist. Um, some of the people who have come to me, they've come to me, but I already dug them and, and I don't have anybody on my roster and I never have had anybody on my roster that I'm not completely crazy about the way they, they either sing or play their instruments. I mean, it's just, for me, it would be too hard to, to view this clinically. Like I have to be blown away by, by the artistry to even consider it. But I look at, at five things and I've, I've created sort of this um, anagram called price and the P is performing. Like I have to be blown away by your live performance. R is recording. Like it's not so much that you have to be on a major label or anything, but, but how do you sound recording? Is it something that I think has market value? The I is innovation. Um, I don't want you to try, if you're a saxophonist, don't play me John Coltrane without doing something innovative with it. Like, like do this different instrumentation or a different something, innovate or write, which is the C in price. I wanna see that you can compose music because I don't think you'll go very far just playing other people's music. At some point, 
What do you have to say? Why did the creator give you a skill? And the E is education, because I believe that we want jazz to continue as an art form forever. And so I want you to be interested in educating. So that's price for me. P is perform, R is record, I is innovate, C is compose, and E is educate. If you have those five things for me, then I am interested in working with you. Oh my gosh, that's just worth its weight in gold. Because that's applicable, that's something that somebody who's listening to this, who is perhaps a jazz musician, can take that and say, well, actually, you know what, I'm going to see how do I fare if I go yeah. through those things for myself. And I spoke to Mike Epstein a while back for the same mm -hmm. series. And mm -hmm. something that you have in common is that he's also quite focused on systems. If you're going yes. to contact me, fill out this questionnaire, see how you fare in all these different realms, mm -hmm. and then we can chat. And And I think that there's something so generous, but again, community focused, which is obviously yes. just part of your personality and your outlook, where you are in a position where you can help people that work with you directly, but this sort of mindset actually also yes. helps other people who are not lucky enough to work with you directly. They still get to glean something and learn something from you. Yes, thank you. I love that. And I and I love that if somebody's listening to this, they may walk away and say, ah, some wisdom from Gail. Well, because if, you know, if you, I do think that that musicians and artists generally have a gift. And if they're going to, to employ that gift, it's to help in some way where we are. The artists are the griot of our time. They're the storytellers of our time. And so I want an artist who is able to take in what's happening in the world and then filter it through their artistry. If you're not going to innovate and compose then I think you're cutting yourself off. Nobody, you don't need somebody else just imitating someone else. If you're a true artist, that means you have something to say and the creator has given you the gift to do that. And so I'm interested in your innovation, in your compositions, and more importantly, are you ready to educate and, and give somebody else the, the knowledge that you have? I love that. And I think it tells us a lot about you and possibly your managing style. Yes. And why artists who are on your roster probably just love working with you. Well, John Clayton and I and Don Braden and I have been together 27 years. Those long relationships also tell somebody a great deal about the person. Do you want to tell us about your relationship with John Clayton? Oh, my God. It's, it's like we have a joke between us that I'm his manager sometimes and he's my manager sometimes. <laughs> I think once again, his brother, Jeff Clayton, who just passed away last year during the pandemic, came to me first in 1993 and asked me if I would manage the Clayton Brothers Quintet. And I don't remember now what I was doing in 1993 that made me hesitate a little bit because I said, you know, I really love the music. Everything that is in my price, they had, but it, for some reason I was hesitating and it might just be that I was already really busy. Um, and so he said, well, I want you to meet my brother also. Um, and he is conducting, he's gonna be in New York. So I went to the studio and it was, um, Al Schmidt, Tommy LaPuma, and John Clayton was conducting McCoy Tyner in a big orchestral kind of thing. And I sat there and I listened to this music and I thought, wow, he's talented in more than just being a bass player, like he's a composer, arranger, producer. So we all talked and then very shortly thereafter, I said, I would love to work with you guys. And I did. So I've been working with the Clayton Brothers, Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra, for 27 years and we've become family. I mean, it's not, I managed Gerald Clayton for a while. I've known Gerald since he was like seven or eight years old. Um, and so when he when he came in and won the, the well, he didn't win the month competition, I think he came in second, but at any rate, I started managing him right after that. And that lasted for a few years, but I always knew he wanted to spread his wings and didn't want to be under the same management company with his dad. <laughs> but we're just friends and family, you know, it's it's been great. 
And we should make a note that since Gerald left you, he's been incredibly unsuccessful. So oh, yeah. It really... You know, uh, who have, who's ever even heard of him But now? yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but we're still family, you know, and it was it was never, it wasn't an unfriendly party. Um, I was at John's daughter's graduation from Harvard Law School. Um, you know, it's just like we're family at this point. Yeah, we're definitely joking about Gerald. He's absolutely, absolutely. fine. <laughs> He's doing great. Obviously, to a degree, an artist who comes to you for management has ticked off those those price mm -hmm. items on their list. Once they start working with you, what are your expectations of them? What do you need from them? And what have you found in your experience is really valuable and really helps your working relationship and helps them to realize their goals if they do? Once we see that we're a good team, because all managers and artists are not meant to be together. I mean, you, you'll you'll hear sometimes people say, well, I had to let that manager go, or you'll hear the manager say, I had to let the artist go. And it's, it's not that either is a bad person or not really dedicated to their work. It's just not a good match. So once we see that we have that match, I'm more interested in what it is the artist wants to do so that I can help them get there. I don't like the kind of artist who comes to me and says, what should I do next? What kind of album should I should I do next? Because the answer to that is I have absolutely no idea. I'm not the artist. It's but if you have to tell me what it is your goals are, then we can look and try to map that out. So if you're saying to me straight out of school and you've never recorded with anybody, but by next year you want to be at Carnegie Hall, I might say to you that might be a bit ambitious. Let's not turn it down, but let's see how we can try to get there. And if if in the next 11 months I don't see a way to get you there, if you are smart enough to realize that that probably can't happen, but we can map out something that maybe in two years or three years that's your ultimate goal, then that's that I find that to be a a good working relationship. So it's like, it's kind of like the plumber. You know, if you have an issue at home, you know what's broken, but you might not know how to fix it. And I come in and I can say to you as the, you know, using that same analogy as the plumber, I can tell you, this is what I need to do to fix it. So you know the problem, I know the solution often, and then we have to work together to make it happen. So really it's a team. And I like it when we when we look at it as teamwork. You know the album you want to do. You know the guests. I'll try to get those guests for you. You know that you want it to be on a certain label. I will try to get you on that label if that doesn't happen. And, and at this point now, I'm not actually encouraging looking for labels where they own your master. One of the things that I'm encouraging all my clients to do is own their own master so we can have a little bit more control. We might license it to a label but I really encourage them to try to find their own funding and whether it's crowdfunding, family funding, whatever it is to, to 
own their own master. So you'll have more control over it is what you're doing. So I like the, the idea of working in a team and I like the idea of somebody who is in it for the long haul and not trying to get rich quick. If you're trying to get rich in jazz, we probably need to rethink that. <laughs> it might be possible, but that's not something I can promise you. But if you wanna be a successful jazz musician and have some performances and have some recordings and contribute to the lexicon of the music, then I would like to help you do that. I will add, Gail, I told you about that Carnegie Hall dream in confidence. <laughs> and I just wish that if you really felt that it couldn't happen in 11 months, you would have sent that to me in an email with, so your, legal, with your accidental legal sign-off. I'm so sorry. This is not the forum in which to air my dreams dream. being dashed. I'm so um, sorry. Gail, on on the how in your experience, how commonplace is it becoming for labels to say, sure, no problem, we're not going to demand that we own the master and that you you can hold on to it. And maybe can you expand a little bit on that for for folks who are not familiar with kind of recording and the owning of the work versus the licensing of it, etc. Okay. So the way it used to be, and it was that way for years, let's say a record company, Red Note, let's say that Red Note signs you to a record deal. They would give you a budget. You would have to bring in the recording within that budget. They would own the master. So the master is the recording. So once you have finished the recording, Red Note Records owns it. But it's a, a very weird thing because you have to pay them back for the money they gave you. So in other words, if they give you $20,000, it's theirs. Let's say that you've recouped enough sales that you paid Blue, uh, Red Note back <laughs> the full 20,000. So it, you would think that it would be yours then because it's like they loaned you 20,000 to do the album. You've now sold enough albums that they get their 20,000 back. But no, what happens is they own it in perpetuity and they give you a percentage of the sales. And it's usually somewhere less than 20%, 10, 15, up to 20%. So let's look at that. They've loaned you the money, you did the album, you gave it back to them, you've now paid for the album. And for the rest of eternity, you get like 12%. So it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's how it was for years. The model that I'm talking about is that you go and raise the $20,000 somewhere. It's either in your family or you do crowdfunding or you work on another job, whatever you do. Or you, grants. Or grants. You then go into the studio and record the album. That's your master. Then you can go to Red Note Records and you can say, I will let you release this album for seven years. So for seven years, you can act like you own it. But after seven years, it reverts back to me. And in that seven, and so Red Note will say, well, yeah, I really want this album. So I will give you an advance against it. So they may give you some money because you actually spent the money for it. So they may give you some money, let's say 10,000. So now you have to recoup the 10,000, but you're also gonna strike a better deal. You're gonna say, during that seven year period, I want 50% of the royalties that come in. I don't want 10%, I want half because I financed it. In some instances, you can say, I want 60%. And some record companies are saying, okay. And after seven years, you get the ownership of the master back and then it's yours to do with whatever you want. You can release it yourself or you can license it to someone else, but it's in your estate. Does it go off the label after those seven years? Yes. Do they have the option to renew for another seven? Or? Sometimes. Usually they don't want to after that. But sometimes if it's a real hit, they, they will say, and then you can strike an even better deal. You can say, okay, give me 65% now. But the whole point is that it's yours. 
to do with what you want. And right now there are people who are trying to get masters back and they can't because the labels won't let them. They also aren't doing anything with them. And to be clear, in the old model or the traditional model where you fund the album, well, where the label funds the album, but you pay that money back and then they have the masters in, pe- in perpetuity, they're offering you what? The, the opportunity to be under that label banner. Yes. That's supposed to be the... Enough. Enough. And it's the way it was. I mean, it's just the way it was for years and years and years. It was there. There were really not a lot of other ways to look at it. Now, in the pop world, they had thought about that, and so now you hear about imprint labels under Warner Brothers, and it'll be some rap artist's own label under that, and a lot of that is licensing. Um, and so, in jazz, was a little bit slower getting to it, but it's really something I highly recommend. And speaking of John Clayton, for example, for the last twenty years, we've owned our own master, and we've gone through um, a licensing kind of deal. Well, it's artist share, and with with the Clayton brothers, and we get eighty five percent. Yeah, but and, artist- and we own the master. Yeah, and we should say that artist share is known as being one of the better if not poss- possibly the best model in and the, the first and the first yeah. and they were the first and and literally 85 percent of whatever you 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 manage in sales you you get they keep 15 you get it all so on that note let me ask you from a manager perspective and what you've experienced with your artists how valuable is that being on a label Oh no, you can go for it, Gail, if you want to, or if you need to. No, no. It's someone from Red Note calling you. (laughs) Threatening to sue me. (laughs) Out of office. How valuable is it for an artist? And perhaps it's different depending on where the artist is in their trajectory. Are they emerging? Mm -hmm. Are they established? How valuable is that label label? being on a red note. So there's so many artists now who think about the red note of the past. And so they want to be part of that, that lineage. And, and so they're willing, you know, I've said to some young artists, why don't we just do this so you can own your own master? It's like, oh, but I've always dreamed of being on X. And I just want to be on X and I'll, and I'll say, but they're going to own your master forever. And I don't care. That's just how some artists are. And if that's what they want, I, tr- I fight as long as I can. And then I try to get it for them. <laughs> you know, and I don't, and I tell them the whole time I'm fighting and screaming, saying, I really wish you wouldn't let me do this, but I will ask if you want. Um, they know I'm reluctant, but I will, you know, I will ask, but really, I think that a lot of younger artists are getting it now and they're doing those kinds of things where they are trying to raise, you know, GoFundMe or some of the others. I know that there was one company that kind of went belly up and it disappointed a lot of people who were doing crowdfunding through them. But I just think it's the best way I I do personally. But, and the value, I mean, even if it's not so much chasing a childhood dream of I've always wanted to be a red note artist and to be on the same label as I don't know you know Mm -hmm. Nora Jones Mm -hmm. in terms of what it does for a career does it do anything does it hasten other people to respond to you or to book you or is that not I think if you for example we were talking earlier about this one publicist that we both love um If you hire her, if you have your own label and you hire her and you hire a radio promotions person that the record companies hire anyway, if you hire a, you know, a social media marketing kind of person, you are a label. And, and now if you look at the top songs on, on billboard, or if you look at the top songs, a lot of those are licensed. They're not owned by the, even if you see Red Note Records, it could very well be that they licensed it 
or if you see a, a Sony, it, it, could, it could be that they license. It doesn't mean they own the master. And so they are supplying their marketing arm and their distribution. The other thing is to try to get really good distribution, but then distribution is not everything it used to be because so many of the sales are digital now. And so if you can put something out on all platforms and for Europe, I think that, that albums are still something that is more important and more necessary. So if you had European distribution and you have digital sales, you're kind of your own label. You have to make your own way in terms of whether people, I don't think people respect you more just because you're on Red Note Records than they would if you're on your own label, if you have those other things going on, you know? And I'm looking, for example, at the Baylor project um, and I managed them for a while. And we're still really good friends. In fact, my husband and I are inside of their newest album. We're pictured inside of their newest album. Um, but that's their own label. They own Be A Light Music. I, could, I like to take credit for convincing them to do that because at first we were looking for a label and I kept saying, guys, you really could do this on your own. You know, hire the publicist, hire the radio promotions, hire this, hire that. They did it. They got nominated for two Grammys first time out. Now they've got this, they got nominated again for one of a single that they put out during the pandemic. And now this new album is number two on radio will be number one probably by this week. What did they miss? You know what I'm saying? They have a booking agent, they're touring. So I just think that it, I think it requires a recalibration of our dreams and what it is we wanna get out of this. And if it's just so that you can say I'm on a label, go for it, you know, try to and let them own your master. That's fine if that's what you want. But if you really want to own your own master, start to create an estate for yourself, um, then I think you should think about it like that. Yeah. Gosh, that's sound advice. And you got it here for free, folks. Gail. I'll send you my curious. bill and you can share it out with all your listeners. <laughs> ask you a general question and say well how do you do this with an artist or what do you do in this situation but I thought actually and again you may have answered this earlier but it would be nice to talk about him and then I can also play some of his music and it's a, a nice little shout out to one of your artists but you recently started managing the South African pianist Nduduzo Makatini. Yes. He's had a yes. brilliant couple years, a red note, I mean, a blue note debut album. Yes, blue note record. <laughs> yes. And he recently won a South African Music Award, a Sama Award, yes. which is the South African equivalent of the Grammys for Best That's Jazz right. Album. Very I know, isn't that wonderful? So, yeah, totally lovely. And I wanted to ask you if you could tell us about your working relationship with Nduduzo. Obviously, you are in America, he's in South Africa, though we know that yes. jazz makes the world small in the most wonderful ways. How it yes. came to be, how the stars aligned, and maybe use him as an example to outline exactly why it works and how some of the things that you spoke about earlier with Price uh -huh. and more come into play, but with him specifically. Yes. Well, I am really honored to work with him. And, and I have never actually met him face to face yet. We have only met each other via Zoom. It's so funny. 
even though I'm, the first time I met him was before the pandemic, but he was in South Africa and he reached out to me for management. And I was very interested and he said he would get back to me and he didn't. And so I went along and then a friend of mine, now we're in the pandemic, the album is out, it's wonderful, I love it. Um, then a friend of mine, Tom Rome, who is also an attorney, and we used to have a law office at the, at the same place. We weren't partners, but I had my law office there, and he had his law office there on 43rd and Broadway. And so we remembered each other from 30 years ago, and he reached out to me and said, hey, I'm managing this South African pianist, and I need help. You know, I, 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 would you love to co-manage him with me? And I was like, sure, who is it? And he said, Nduzo Makatini. I'm like, well, I don't, I didn't know where he went. So you ended up with him. He's like, yeah, but I need your help. So I said, great. And so we started working together. And so some of the things that you're talking about, this is a very interesting thing because it's actually universal South Africa where his album is and then Blue Note takes it on because it's all part of the universal family and he's kind of the first artist and he had already done and owns many of the masters that he's done in South Africa so he, he's right in, in you know line with what I'm, I'm talking about with that uh, but I view him as a really good pianist but more importantly I view him as one of the most spiritual people I think I've ever talked to in my life. And every time I talk to him, I learn from him. Um, and he attaches his music to his spirituality, which is his life. And he talks about pre-colonial um, times and things like that. So I'm just enjoying learning up through him. And his music is otherworldly as far as I'm concerned. It's like, it's magnificent. I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying working with him. He's a really, really beautiful person. I love, I just, I love hearing stories like that. I get so excited for the people involved, whether or not I know them. And I, know. And I love it when, yeah, again, stars align, things align and things that are meant to be will be. And the idea that he reached out to you, you said, reach out to me I said again. Yes. He didn't. <laughs> if I, if I see him, if I'm back in Cyprus, I'll be like, did you so? What was wrong yeah. with you? But he even says, we've talked about it. And he's just like, I don't know. You know, I don't know what happened. I just got busy and I just thought I would do something else. And then, and then when Thomas brought me back into the picture, he's like, it was to be. <laughs> exactly. And I love that whole. And Somi is the one who had introduced him to me in the first place. She's the one who said to him, you should contact Gail Boyd. Okay. Well, and well, it's great that he took her advice and at least made that yes. initial contact. Well, I love that. And I, I'm so excited to see him reach greater and wider Thanks acclaim. And we spoke about how important or how unimportant the aura of a famous label is. But I do think yes. for somebody like him, he's so well known within South Africa. But that right. really is a really valuable stamp of approval in terms of having new audiences take note. Yes, yes, and that is what he wants to do. And because he came over here and went and Marcellus fell in love with him, and now um, he's done a few things at Jazz at Lincoln Center, so that's helped his profile quite a bit. And we're now working on a tour here in the United States in the spring of 2022 that um, Lincoln Center is helpful and helping me pull it all together. So, you know, more to come.
I cannot thank you enough for your time and your generosity, but I love, you mentioned earlier that what you love about alternative venues and jazz and the people who come on daily, Monday through Friday, we should say, to share their relationships with jazz and their stories with jazz is that you always learn something new. And yes. although I've known you for nearly a decade now, every time I speak to you, whether it's in passing or whether I'm lucky enough to have a sit down like this and get get a chunk of your time, I'm always just bowled over by how much more I learn from you every time. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. No, and I feel in many ways that this was long overdue. I'm thinking, but when I lived in New York, why did I never pester Gail and buy her a coffee? I would have enjoyed that. And now just the idea of going out and having a coffee with somebody is just, I miss it. I know, I know. But I, I just um, cannot thank you enough. So thank you for sharing everything with our listeners. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it a lot. so much to the divine Gail Boyd for being today's guest on The Insider. I will make a note of all tracks played during today's episode in the show notes for the episode, as well as any other links mentioned during conversation. The Insider is a spin-off series to the jazz session that I created in order to chat to jazz industry experts about the work that they do and the musicians who inspire them. The Insider is available to Patreon members at the $10 per month tier in advance of the episodes being available to the public on all podcast platforms. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to head to thejazzsession.com slash join, thejazzsession.com slash join, to find out how you can become a patron today. Feel free to rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Check out the Jazz Sessions YouTube channel for video excerpts of interviews with this season's guests. Thank you for listening. I'm Nikki Schreira and I'll see you soon.